University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verse 16. We are in our second to last week in this series, Pathfinder. Some of y'all are thinking, thank God. (laughs) Now, the nature of doing a four-month series in one gospel is that you eventually have to skip over some things. And so last week we left off in chapter 14 and we're picking up in chapter 19. So what's happened in the meantime? Well, there's another feeding miracle. This time it says 4,000 men, which means more likely it was between 8,000 to 16,000 men, women, and children. There's some dicey encounters with the religious leaders. We start to see the really underlying reasons of why these group of people eventually to plot to have Jesus arrested, beaten, and crucified. There's some parables, and then there's that whole transfiguration thing. And right before our passage, Jesus does something interesting. He scolds the disciples because the disciples were trying to act like families and their children were not important to Jesus and tells them that the kingdom of God belongs to children like this. Now, our text this morning is interesting, it's complicated, and it's offensive. So let's read Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commands. Now, think of this moment. There are so many instances in my life where a conversation did not start off the right way. So take, for example, at the middle school dance, uh, when I went to go ask Lauren Johnson if she would dance with me, my body decided it would revolt against me by overacting my sweat glands and by forcing bile into my mouth. It was an encounter that I'll never forget. In college, I was in a music appreciation class. This girl I had been staring at all semester long, I got so nervous that when she came up to me the first time, I responded to her like a jerk. The good news is, it worked out anyways. (laughs) This conversation with Jesus did not start off well for this guy. This reminds me of my first encounter with one of my professors in college who I accidentally called Mr. Walker, who quickly corrected me saying, surely you meant Dr. Walker. You see, when Jesus comes up to somebody and suggests, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, God is the only one who is good. Right, that's what I meant to say, but let me quickly correct what I'm trying to say. You see, Jesus has this very interesting encounter with this man. The man asks him what he must do to inherit. The Greek word used there means to acquire, to obtain. The notion is that eternal life is something that he deserves. It's something that's coming to him. It's something that he can obtain just like he obtained property and wealth from his father or from his business. So this begs the question, can one inherit or obtain the kingdom of God? Well, it says in verse 17, Why do you ask me what is good, Jesus replied? There is only one who is good. 
If you want to inherit life, keep the commands. Verse 18, which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you should not commit murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Man, this is a remarkable guy. He's rich, he's powerful, he's popular. Apparently, he's a perfectionist when it comes to the Jewish law. He's never, ever committed adultery, never murdered anyone, never stole anything. He's never dishonored his mother and father. If there was a poster child for first century Palestine Judaism, this guy would be on the cover. You see, he knows that Jesus can offer him more than the answers he knows, more than the laws that he is supposedly a perfecter in. Therefore, he asked Jesus, what do I still lack? That's a dangerous and loaded question. There are very few people I would be willing to basically say, well, since I'm pretty much well put together and do everything right, what could I possibly be doing wrong in my life? Well, this is what happens in verse 21. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now last week, news broke that archaeologists are beginning the process of restoring uh, the golden coffin of King Tut. Tutankhamun uh, was a nine-year-old pharaoh who rose to power. He ruled between 1333 and 1323 BCE, and he's his long-lasting dynasty of the 18th century. And British archaeologist Howard uh, Carter was the one that discovered uh, Tutankhamun's uh, lair, if you will, in Luxor in, in 1922, and the tomb was untouched and had about 5,000 artifacts that were in it. And of course, ancient Egyptians traditionally would bury wealthy people with a certain percentage of their possessions because they thought they needed it for the afterlife. It was not uncommon as archaeologists would go into these tombs that they would find uh, the dead bodies of several servants. Wouldn't you hate to draw that straw? <laughs> I think I would call in sick that day to work, like I'm just not going to be able to make it. Y'all go on without me. You want to hear a uh, mummy joke? Do mummies enjoy being mummies? Of course. <laughs> All right, that was the only corny one of the day. You see, what's fascinating about the Egyptian culture is that it still inspires our culture nearly 3,500 years later. The Egyptians were obsessed with taking stuff into the afterlife. We are a culture that's saturated with stuff. As much as things change, they really do say the same. A recent study found that 54% of Americans feel overwhelmed by their clutter. 78% have no idea what to do with it. The average American has over 300,000 items in their house. And because we don't know what to do with it, we continue to build bigger homes and bigger homes to fill all of our stuff. A recent study found that with all of our possessions, all of the homes that we live in, that the average person only uses 40% of their home on a given day. The industry of building storage unit rises. In fact, one in 10 people have a storage unit to fit all the stuff they can't fit in their house. We are a culture of stuff. So maybe Jesus' words, go sell your possessions, isn't that irrelevant? 
And you know, when we hear Jesus' words, we start to let them settle in. Our response often is something like this. Wait, Jesus, you misunderstood the question. And then, well, then you gave the wrong answer. Let me restate the question. He, he asked, what must he do to inherit eternal life? He didn't ask you about what he's supposed to get rid of or what about his life he's supposed to change. Jesus, uh, you know that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, right? So let me say it again to you, and I'll say it really slow, Jesus, so you can understand what he meant. What must he do to inherit eternal life? You see, the recipient of Jesus answered the first time, cringed and walked away. And pretty much everyone who hears Jesus' words here, we wanna cringe and walk away. This man had huge theological issues with Jesus on possessions. Pretty much everybody has theological issues with Jesus on possessions. It's uncomfortable, it's countercultural. it's well, uncapitalistic, and seems very non-American. And it, it doesn't make sense. What does possessions and money and level of wealth have anything to do with inheriting eternal life and following Jesus? And of all the things to preach on, I can tell you that money is not the thing I want to preach on. In fact, a recent poll found that only 3% of ministers like to talk about money from the pulpit. <laughs> I'm not alone in the lectionary study as the text follows the church calendar, year A is the year that follows the Gospel of Matthew. Do you know what the lectionary does at this part in Matthew? It skips completely over chapter 19. Even our founding fathers within the faith had nothing to do with this text. But at the same time, this, this text is about money and possessions, but it's also about something so much more. I'm starting the process of applying for doctorates in organizational leadership. And in order to get this process underway, I had to contact my alma mater to get my undergraduate and graduate uh, transcript. And it came in a few weeks ago, and there were some grades on there that I didn't remember. Um, you see, my concentration in undergrad was in religion and philosophy with a focus in church history. Therefore, when I headed into divinity school and started to go into my church history classes, um, well, I remember thinking to myself, well, I know this, I definitely know this, I definitely know that, and so I started to tune out my professor. Except when my first midterm exam came in, um, well, apparently I didn't need to tune him out because I didn't know that particular thing, and then when it came to writing an essay on this particular context, I had no idea what was going on. Tuning out was the worst possible thing I could have done. You see, for many of us, when we hear these words of Jesus, we tend to tune him out. For some of us, we think, well, don't worry, Jesus. I don't have enough in my bank account to worry about giving anything away because I don't have anything away to give. Except this story is about riches, and it is about something so much more. We might not accumulate wealth, but some of us hold tightly to status and social standing and image. For others, we grip tightly to family and relationships and friendships. For others, we can't imagine parting with our work and our time. Instead of possessions, Jesus might have used the word rightness or religiosity or political allegiance. What about the gratification that comes with drama and control and attaining more? You see, as we start to 
hear these messages, as we hear these words of Jesus, we want to we wanna tune them out as if they're not relevant to our life. For this man, possessions was the obstacle in the way of him finding true life. And Jesus' response to this man reveals what was really going on for this man to attain eternal life. What's really in his way in this moment, what's really in the way is his power and his resources and his money. What's really in the way is his little kingdom. Eternal life, the kingdom of God, it's not the spiritual desire for this man. You see, what he desires is to obtain, to have control, to whittle the kingdom of God into his little purse. You see, the deeper thing going on here is not just the consumption of stuff. The deep spiritual issue going on here is idolatry. He's worshiping the object and the idea of eternal life rather than the God who calls him into life. We see clearly that eternal life is not truly what he desires because he loves his possessions and wealth. He loves these things so much more. And what's fascinating about the word used for idolatry in the New Testament is it literally translates the worship of mammon. Mammon is the Greek word that means riches or treasure. Even this man, he, he desires what he wants to obtain the most is the root of this love of his possessions and his stuff. This is why Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other, unless you will devote yourself or despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. You see, this man, to inherit true life, to truly receive the kingdom of God, he must relinquish the very thing that holds his security and his prosperity and his hope and his foundation. And Jesus sees what the man is worshiping. He therefore invites the man to change his way of thinking and living. He invites him to find true life by finding a different path than the one he's walking on. As the great Richard Rohr put it, I do not think we should rid ourselves of idols until we have learned what they have to teach us. Pablo Escobar uh, was a Colombian drug lord and narco-terrorist. He was dubbed the, the king of cocaine. And Escobar uh, was the wealthiest criminal in history. He amassed uh, somewhere in the realm of about $58 billion in today's money. And his reign was from the 1980s to the 1990s. And during his reign, Pablo had a hitman named Popeye, which, I mean, that's kind of a funny nickname, but nobody was going to make fun of him because this guy killed like 250 people. I'm sure somebody did make fun of his nickname, and that's why they made the list of 250. But what was curious is this thing, this guy did some awful, awful things, but one of the kills on his record was what he called the love of his life, his girlfriend. In an interview, he, he said this. One day, the boss calls me and plays a tape. It was the love of my life, chatting with the police captain. She was betraying Pablo. She was betraying my God. So I had to kill her. I had to kill this woman that was standing in the way of my God. He said, at the, at the heart of this exchange with Jesus, the young man comes to face to face with his idol. The other gospels label him rich and ruler. Jesus is asking him to forego his mammon, these idols, and to find a new way of life. But Jesus' response is clear. He, he walks away from him, choosing to worship 
his God, because that's what idolatry does. Idolatry kills off rival gods. You see, the worship of gods transforms our priorities, the way that we think and the way that we speak. Life centers on our gods. All of our work and our play and our schedules and our money and our relationships, all determined by our gods. The worship of gods convinces us of what is right and what is wrong, who to listen to and who to ignore, what is wisdom and what is foolishness. The worship of God centers our lives on what gives us substance and a future. Our our souls can only truly be faithful to one God. This is why Jesus said in the Gospels, you cannot serve two masters. So whichever God we serve, we kill off all rival gods. But what's fascinating and disconcerting about this exchange with Jesus, it has nothing to do with, with his richness and his power. It has nothing to do with what Jesus is walking, asking him to walk away from. What we forget about this exchange is that this is an opportunity for good news. This is an opportunity for life to the full. And if we close our eyes, we can maybe hear Jesus saying to this man as what he might be saying to us. These other gods, they're, they're gonna have your whole life spinning. They will have you on a rat race of no end. These other gods will have you on an endless cycle of more, but it's never going to fill you. The void will never close. There will never be enough stuff, enough comfort, enough security Follow me because I know the way to true life. I know the way to life to the full. I I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds so difficult from what you have been taught, but true life is not centered on these things. It's centered on a life of love and peace and goodness and kindness and humility and self-control and mercy and forgiveness and freedom. Freedom from these silly things. See, Jesus is offering this man the whole world. Not packaged and manufactured in consumer commodities of stuff and power and security. Instead, Jesus is offering this man a world that God created, that God created him to be. This is good news. It is a great invitation, and it's met with a rejection. And even the disciples are baffled by this moment because our text wraps up this way in verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you it's, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter in the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or wives, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. 
You see, in Jesus' day, it was believed that if you were wealthy, it was a sign of God's favor. This is why the disciples are astonished by what they have seen Jesus say and by what he has done. If this man can't be saved because he isn't giving up what God gave him, the disciples are thinking, then what can we do? Even the words they use, saved, shows the depth of their uncertainty. The Greek word used here is sozo, which means to be kept safe, to be rescued from danger. Does that not speak to our anxiety of letting go of other gods? These are the things that keep us safe. These are the things that rescue us from peril. These are the things that will save us. And in the face of the disciples' shock and confusion and disappointment, Jesus turns the disciples to wonder. It is the wonder of an unfathomable God that makes impossible things possible. What seems impossible with us is possible with God, but it requires faith. We might not get it. We might not even agree with Jesus. We might not like it, but if we're willing to trust that Jesus knows what he is doing, if he knows what he is talking about, if we know and trust that he knows where he is leading, then we should follow him in faith. There's a story in the Bible that rivals this story. We're all too familiar with it. It's of a man named Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. We learned that Zacchaeus is taking advantage of other people because he had the threat of Rome on his lips. So he's not only taxing the people, subjugating them again and again from Rome, but also he's taking a little something-something on the side for himself. We learned that Jesus comes to his town. He can't see Jesus, so he climbs up into a tree. Jesus sees him and calls him down and says, I'm going to eat at your house. Luke tells us that people are aghast by this act. Why would Jesus eat with such a despicable man, an enemy, our financial oppressor? But before Jesus can even utter a word out of his mouth, Zacchaeus begins to tell Jesus that he will give half of his possessions to the poor. And the crowd is bemoaned, thinking to themselves, well, he has plenty of leftover. He's not even going to be uncomfortable if he gives half of his possessions away. But then Zacchaeus shocks the crowd when he says he will give four times the amount he has taken from people. Y'all, this is before Jesus even preached a sermon or had a conversation with this man. Zacchaeus was willing to pay whatever the cost to follow Jesus. He was willing to give away what he had built for himself in order to find this true kingdom in Christ. Without even having to ask, Zacchaeus answered with an act of faith. Zacchaeus went there. He was willing to go anywhere to follow Christ. Charles Blondin was a world-renowned tightrope artist and, and acrobat. And on uh, June the 30th, 1859, he had a crowd uh, amassed around him. They say about 100,000 people. As he was the first person to uh, cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. It's crazy. <laughs> he did this, um, it was a 1,100-foot, um, three-inch hemp rope. Um, and it was about a 160-foot fall uh, to the bottom. Breathlessly, um, people watched him accomplish this step by step, feet by feet, what they saw was impossible. And he went on to do this multiple times, but and then he kept changing his act. Like he would do it on stilts, then he would do it in a potato sack, and then he would even do it in a wheelbarrow. 
And somebody uh, is said, shouted out for the crowd, you should cross over with a man in that wheelbarrow. And Blondin agreed, and he invited that man who shouted out to him to come up and join him across the tightrope. But the nervous spectator declined the offer. See, remember, Jesus is having this conversation with this young man. He's righteous, he's an upstanding citizen, he, he's someone who's never done anything bad in his life, and when Jesus tells him to go and sell his possessions, give the money to the poor, and come back and follow him, he can't do it. It seems there is no hard rule when it comes to Jesus of what we have to give away to follow him. This man was asked to give everything. Zacchaeus only gave a percentage. See, what this comes down to is faith. Faith that Jesus knows what he's talking about in our life. Faith that when Jesus' way and Jesus' teaching bump up against our idols, we're willing to kill that idol and push it to the side in order to find true life in Christ. As one author put it, if we uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. Jesus is calling us to do the same. Jesus is whispering in our ear, in my ear, whatever God, whatever thing you think will give you comfort and security and satisfaction and wholeness, it won't. But if you give up that God and follow me, you will discover something new. Do we have the faith to follow into the impossible?